Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Grace be with you all. And so even if you take a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, if you look at it, there are pieces of that that actually give us some insight into God's character. God says in 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. That's a piece of God's character. He is all-knowing. He does know the future. He does know where all this is heading. And so we can rest in that even when the world looks chaotic and our circumstances are spinning out of control. We can still look at something like that and go, you know what? God, you still know what's going to happen. And you still know that there's a plan ahead of this and that there might be something, something later on in the future that you are preparing me for right now. We don't like 2910. <laughs> We like 2911. God's going to bless me and give me all the things that I want. But what we don't realize is that there's a waiting period in that many, many times. And there are trials and tribulations and really hard decisions and really tough choices that have to be made between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. And so anytime I see that, I just kind of go, what about 10? When you're talking about 70 years of exile, 70 years of being separated from their people, 70 years of being away from their homeland, 70 years of not knowing what's going to happen to them and their families. But Paul had a different, uh, he had a different equation that he was working off of in these verses. It's not godliness equals material gain. He says godliness plus contentment is going to give you fulfillment. And he doesn't use that word, but that's what he's talking about when he's, when he's talking about this idea of completeness, this idea that no matter what my external situation is, internally I can have contentment, internally I can have fulfillment, internally I can have peace, knowing that God is going to, at some point, God will be faithful to the promises that are according to his character. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Paul gives this. He says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's Paul's base level requirement for contentment. Paul was obviously not an American, right? Because, and especially not an American in the South, or else he would have added air conditioning and sweet tea to the list. But he says, No, if you've got food, and you've got clothing, which the word that he uses for clothing actually is more, more like covering. So you could probably assume that he was talking not just about actual clothes, but also shelter. And so Paul is basically saying, look, if your basic physical needs are being met, you should be content. 
That's good enough for you. As far as your external factors of contentment go, it is food, clothing, and shelter, and that's it. That's Paul's level of contentment. And we, we've, uh, we have this kind of in a, in a diagram here. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's the hierarchy of needs. And you've probably seen this if you've taken any sociology or psychology or anything like that. You've probably, know, you've probably seen this. Uh, I think Roy might have talked about it a little bit uh, when he was preaching. But I want to draw your attention to the very bottom of it. That uh, has to do with physical needs, air, food, water, uh, shelter, sleeping, clothing. Uh, a place to sleep, a place, uh, clothing, things to cover you. Those are your basic physical needs. And that's where Paul says, if, if we're at level one and everything's good there, then there's no reason for us to be discontent. There's no reason for us not to feel, feel fulfilled, to feel like everything's, everything's going to be fine. It's our basic physical needs are being met, are the only requirements for contentment. And we're going to come back to that hierarchy of needs in just a little bit. But verse 9 and 10, as we, as we round out this passage, and then we're going to dive into it a little, bit, uh, a little bit more. But it says this in verse 9. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I want to give you a little bit, uh, a little bit of a, a word study here. We're not going to get too, uh, too deep into it, but there are some words that are in this passage that as I, as I kind of dug down into it, there are some words in here that are not used anywhere else in Scripture. There's unique words in this passage that are not used anywhere else. And so I kind of wanted to look at, uh, look at a couple of them. But in verse 9, the word that he uses for plunge literally means exactly what you, what you think it means. It means to pull down, to plunge something, to pull down. And those, uh, if you've ever been one of these people, I know I have, or if you've ever been around someone who is in a lot of financial distress, a lot of times they talk about feeling like they've been buried or feeling like I'm in a hole and I just can't get out of it. This, this uh, desire to, to be secure. And again, this goes back to that, that very base level hierarchy of need, right? I just need food and I need shelter uh, and I need some clothes on my back. And if you don't have those things, then a lot of, a lot of times it will feel like you've been buried or you're in the hole. So he uses that, that word there. The other thing that I, that I thought about this, if you read into this passage, is it says not only that is, is to uh, many, uh, rich fall into temptation, into a snare, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So he says those that desire to be rich plunge people into ruin and destruction. And both of those things are plural. Because I don't know about you, but most of the time, almost every single time, you find somebody that's in some sort of financial distress because they've desired to, to get rich quick or they've made bad decisions with their money, then it affects those around them. There's a ripple effect to that. There's a ripple effect to almost every sin, but when we talk about making poor decisions with our money and this temptation to want more, I mean, in verse 9, he says, "...the rich fall into temptation." into a snare, 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, he's saying the same thing like three different ways there. Why? Is because he wants to understand the severity of this. That when, when you find yourself with this desire, this longing to have more and more and more and to get more and more, he says it's going to not just, not just be a temptation, it's a snare, it's a trap. Which, if you've ever if you've ever been in massive amounts of debt, you know what that means. You know what that feels like. It says to feel trapped into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he goes on in verse ten, which is a fairly famous verse, and we're going to make sure that we uh, we interpret this correctly. It says, "For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils." It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And there is one of, these, uh, one of these unique words. It's used one other time for the love of money. It's actually one word in the, in the original language that says the love of money, which is totally different if you read 1 Corinthians 13. You see that they're using the, this uh, form of love that means unconditional love. And if you're talking about brotherly love that you would have for f- friends and family, that's a different word in the original Greek. Here we see an entirely different word altogether that is just specific to the love of money. And it makes sense that Paul would use this word to describe what, what he's talking about. Uh, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is, is serving the Lord in the, in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the financial hubs of this entire area at the time that this was written. And so this would not be something that Timothy would just be casually aware of. He'd be very aware of what this word means, this love of money that Paul's talking about. The only other place that it's mentioned is in Luke chapter 16, and we're actually going to go there uh, because I think it helps us to be able to understand what, what Paul's really getting at in 1 Timothy. By the way, just as a quick plug, just uh, some of you might not know this, but I am not a, what I would call a biblical scholar. Uh, I like. Uh, I have some tools that I that I've used. I've not been to seminary, <laughs> and I don't know if God will call me into seminary. But these are all things when we talk about when I start talking about this stuff. I always want to make sure, especially when I'm talking with teenagers and things like that. Like we live in a great, great time where you can find a lot of good information on the internet. Now, if you know where to look, right? Uh, blueletterbible.org, I believe, is where I usually go to find all of my Bible dictionaries and be able to find all of the original stuff and things like that. And that's why I was able to, to look at this word and go, oh, this word is used in 1 Timothy. It's also used in Luke because Jesus, te- uh, Jesus uses this word in Luke chapter 16. He's talking uh, to a crowd of people, and one of the thing, one of the my favorite things that Jesus does when he's teaching in the Gospels is he's talking to a crowd of people. So I would be like talking to maybe these first two rows, but Jesus is fully aware that there's some Pharisees and Sadducees. No offense, but there's Pharisees and Sadducees that are kind of listening in on the conversation, and so he's talking to these people, but really. He's talking to those people, and I really enjoy that. I just think it's one of the funnier things that you see Jesus do time and time again is he indirectly addresses something. And so in verse, uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 13 and 14 is all we're going to look at. But Jesus is talking about this love of money, and he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either 
he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And usually we would end there, but look at verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Whoa. <laughs> Could you imagine being one of those Pharisees on the other side of eternity that says, yeah, we were just making fun of the Son of God because he was saying things that to us seemed absolutely ridiculous. Why would you be a rabbi? Why would you be a religious leader? In the eyes of the Pharisees, they were thinking, why would you put yourself in this position if not to get money, to build wealth, to build power, to build influence? Like Jesus, you've completely missed the whole point of why we do what we do. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing, and Jesus calls them out on it. He says they're lovers of money. They're just after their own personal gain. It was the problem when Jesus was, uh, was on the earth, and here we have Paul in fir the first century. The church is just getting uh, established and really going and really starting to get organized. And as soon as that happens, what happens? First, uh, we have Timothy who's dealing with people who are trying to use religion, religion and trying to use positions of influence and power in order to have personal gain which is exactly why Paul spent as much time as he, as he did talking about the qualifications of leaders. And so I want you to kind of see, like, all these puzzle pieces start, start fitting together here when you see that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing the same problems that Jesus was addressing back in his ministry. And now they're dealing with it all over again, this love of money and it, also in verse 10, it gives this word, uh, it says that because of this, through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That word craving there is actually also used uh, in the epic poem of Homer. It, it, and the word literally means to stretch out or to reach for something. And if you've ever been in that situation where you know there's that thing that you really don't think that you can afford, but you just want it so much. What do we do? We stretch, stretch it out so that we can grasp that thing, so that we can reach that thing, because we think even, even if it's on the, the very smallest of level, at some level we think, if I have this thing, then I'm going to feel content. If I have this thing, then I'm going to be fulfilled because maybe this thing is what's going to give me a better standing with the people around me because it's going to make me look successful. It's going to make me look like I've, like I've made it. So, where do we fit into all of this? So that's what they were dealing with in the first century church. The question now is where do, where do we fit in right now as the church of today. And I think it's pretty obvious that if you look at the vast majority of Americans, we have our basic needs met. I, I was doing, doing some research online, and there are studies that show that even people in the United States who are considered to be at poverty level, if you look at that on a global level, they're actually not <laughs> in poverty on a global scale. We look at it here and go, yeah, they're definitely they're, they're below the poverty line, making X number of dollars, whatever. 
But if you look at that globally in America, they, the, the study said basically there is no such thing as poverty in the truest sense of the word when you look at it from a global scale. So the vast majority of Americans are having their basic needs met. Drill down even further. I think it's safe to say that most of us, if not all of us that are in this room or watching online, probably also have our physical needs being met on a, on a regular basis and consistently. So as I thought about it, I'm like, God, well, how do you talk about contentment when all of us pretty much have our basic physical needs being met? And then as I looked at that hierarchy of needs and you just kind of keep going up and up and up, I mean, you don't start getting, it, start getting into, the, into the real weeds until you get to about level three, four, somewhere in there, where you say, yeah, some, sometimes I feel like that and sometimes maybe not. But so where do we fit into this? Our concern isn't being content in what we lack. But rather, our concern is being content in the abundance that we have. It's not being content about the things that we don't have because our physical needs are being met. Most of us, if you look at it, we're, we have way beyond what we need physically. But rather, our problem and our temptation and I would probably say that Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus in the same regard, is being content in our abundance. Being content with the things that we have that are over and above what we actually need. And so that gives us a little bit different perspective. So let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, that I'm not caught up in this trap that Paul's talking about. I'm not caught up in gaining more wealth and gaining more power and using my, using my influence and, and manipulating my situation in order, to, in order to get more stuff. I'm not stretching out in order to get more and more money. So what, is that, what does that mean for me as a Christian? Well, this, this was probably the greatest revelation of the whole thing. That means that I have the freedom as well as the responsibility to see this hierarchy of needs a little bit differently. I see things a little bit differently now because I can look at that hierarchy, and you can put the second, second one up there. So if I look at this and I go, okay, my physical needs are being met, and according to Scripture, if my physical needs are being met, then that puts me in, in uh, qualification to be content. That I can, look at, I can look at God and I can say, God, you've given me everything that I, that I need in order to live. So now, everything that's above that level becomes not just inwardly focused, which is the problem with this graph, by the way. This was by a secular psychologist. So the problem with this graph is all of it's inwardly focused. But if I look at this from a Christian perspective and I go, all of my physical needs are met, all my safety needs are met, I have community, I have connection, and I'm still looking at esteem and self-actualization, the desire to be the most that God can make me out to be, not that I myself can make me out to be. But if I start looking at these things through that lens of Scripture, through the lens of the gospel, then I don't necessarily have to worry so much about are my level two, three, four, and five needs being met. Because I'm content. My physical needs are met. I have, my, I have my connection with God. 
But now I start looking out to others and saying, where, where are they on this same chart? Where are they? Are there people around me whose basic physical needs are not being met? Are there people around me who need a sense of connection, who need community? Are there people around me who are, who are struggling? They feel worthless and they're depressed. Now it completely flips around this upside down kingdom that Jesus talked about so much. And that, looking at that, it drew me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. And I referenced it up there, but I want to read it because it summarizes exactly what this is talking about. It says, let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's just giving this basic instruction. He says, look out, not just for your own interests. By the way, he doesn't say, don't look out for your own interests, but only the interests of others. He says, no, look out for your needs, the things that you, that you need in order to survive, the things that your family needs if you're a provider for your family. He says, look out for those things that you need, but also look out for the needs of others. And so that hierarchy of needs starts becoming uh, a little bit closer to what we would look at as Christians and go, well, that's the Great Commission. Right there, love, love God, love people is wrapped up in this, into this, is looking out to not just my own interest, but to the interest of others. And also, too, I want to point out, and you see this in the writings of Paul, you see this even, uh, even with Jesus and all throughout the Old Testament, that there's nowhere in Scripture where God condemns wealth in and of itself. There's nowhere in Scripture where, where being rich is being equal to being evil. But everywhere in Scripture does it talk about being rich and being self-serving as being evil. Being rich and striving for more is evil. It's the desire, as we've talked about uh, some last week, is that desire, the craving for more and more, is what God looks at and says this is evil. If you look in the Old Testament, you have many examples uh, of men who were very wealthy by, the, by today's standards as well as theirs. You have David, Abraham, Moses, Joseph was given basically all the riches in Egypt, which would have been the, the most powerful, richest country known to man at the time. So these were men who had wealth. They had means. They had not just their physical needs being met. They were off the charts with their hierarchy of needs. And what did they do with it? They looked outward to say, okay, God, you've, you've given me these things. Now, what are you expecting me to do with them? How can I look at these things to be a blessing to others? And you see the main point right there on the screen. Because of our material blessings, we are positioned to bring enormous amounts of glory to God. And I, be, I believe this is true of almost every Christian American is because of our material blessings, we are uniquely positioned to bring an enormous amount of glory to God. Why? Because I don't know about, I don't really, I'm not really worried about where my next meal is coming from. Let's be honest. That could happen one day, but today is not the case. So my physical needs are being, are being met. And if I go down the chart, and if you go down the chart, you'd probably uh, feel the same way. And so now my... Now my goal, my focus has to be outward. So how do we do this? Uh, just a couple of things that you see there in your notes. Provide for the physical needs of others. By providing for the physical needs of others. 
by progress, and by progressing the gospel according to the Great Commission. Because just as much as Paul said in, verse, in verses 6 and 7, you can't take anything with you, there is a, a, a very clear path to investing into the future beyond your life. And that's, that's extremely obvious. We can find ways to invest in eternal things, not just temporary material things, but invest in eternal things such as the next generation, such as the relationships, such as discipling those who are, who are uh, younger than us. By the way, I do need some D-Now host homes. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Just seemed appropriate. But let's, let's finish this up with our head, heart, and hands. For, for head, is again, it's an understanding that money in and of itself isn't evil, but my love, my desire for it can quickly pull me away from Jesus. And I, I by no means would even come close to being the wealthiest person in this room, but it really doesn't matter. Because as soon as our desires, as soon as our heart shifts from our eternal and our relationship with God to the temporary, to the material, as soon as that desire shifts, it doesn't matter if you have $2 million or you have $20. The desire for more, the desire for material gain is already there. So I have to understand that money by itself isn't evil, but my love for it, my desire for it can quickly, quickly pull me away from Jesus. And as we see in verse 10, it says that it's the root of all kinds of evil, which means if that, if that takes root in my heart, then that springs up all of these other things, all these other sins, all these other behaviors, all the things that we can look at from the outside, outside in and go, how in the world would somebody be able to justify what they did? They cheated people out of millions of dollars. How could they possibly do that? It started with the root. It started with that desire, that craving, that stretching out, because I just need a little bit more. It's the reason why rehab centers are filled with millionaires. Because we just desire, we crave, we want more. And it's really easy to look at the celebrity that's in rehab and go, yeah, they've got a problem. But it still can take root in our own hearts. So our heart... And this may be, may be just for me, maybe, maybe for you as well, but decide to have a year of contentment. Uh, like I said, if 2020 has taught us nothing, <laughs> nothing else, it should have been to be content with what we have because you don't know what tomorrow is going to do. And you don't know if it's going to go away very, very quickly. So I came across this quote from a, uh, from a pastor friend of mine on, on Facebook. I don't know if he was quoting somebody else. Uh, so I, try, I tried to find it elsewhere, but I couldn't. Uh, so it may have just been originally him. And lo and behold, something good came off of social media. Can you believe it? But it's kind of a paraphrase of, of Matthew 6, 21. But he says this. says, the opposite of Christianity isn't atheism. It is idolatry. What holds your heart will shape your life. And it, at, at just in the midst of the mindless, endless scrolling, 
I don't know, I, I think it's just a, a God thing that I just happened to stumble across that and it just kind of pierced me right, right where I needed it to because, because if I think about that, that the opposite of Christianity isn't atheism, it's not believing that God doesn't exist, it's idolatry, believing that there's something else that is God. It's believing that there's something else that is greater than, than my relationship with God. And then that paraphrase of Matthew 6.21, what holds your heart is going to shape your life at some level. And that buddy of mine, uh, Frank Gill, said that. So that's our heart, our hands. It's really simple. Philippians, Philippians 2.4, look for ways to memorize and apply it. And, and so that, that's, that's going to be my big takeaway from, from this whole thing is Philippians 2.4 is looking out for the, not just for my own interest, but the interest of others and seeing what God does there, seeing, seeing the things that God makes me aware of that have probably always been there. There, there are needs that I know are circling all around me, whether those are physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs of the people that I come in contact with. I know that they're there, but I'm not paying attention to them. Because why? Because I'm keeping my head down, nose to the grindstone, got to make that buck, got to do the things, got to do this and that and manage and administrate, right? So look for ways to apply Philippians 2.4. And to invest in some eternal things. Invest in eternal things. Like the legacy that I'm going to leave. The relationships that I need to cultivate, that I need to develop. Relationships that I need to start. And ultimately, the spreading of the gospel. Because that's where, that's where it has to be. That's where true contentment is found. When Paul tells them, he tells them, the, he tells them the, the key, the secret to fulfillment. He says, godliness, my striving after God, my preaching the gospel to myself, my living according to God's word, godliness plus that contentment, that knowing, that security, that safety that is found in not the external things going on in my life, but my internal relationship with God, godliness plus contentment. He says that is great gain. And that's what everybody's striving for, right? Great gain. That's what we're all looking for, and it's found right here in God's Word. It's found right there in the Gospels. But let's pray. And I, my prayer for, for all of us is that obviously we want 2021 to be better, but you know what? There's no guarantee that it is. And as much as I, I, I've gone on record as saying, like, my favorite holiday is New, is New Year's because it's just a clean slate. But guess what? When I woke up January 1st, not a whole lot had changed, right? <laughs> Anybody else feel that? We all have this anticipation that, oh, it's going to be better, it's going to be great. But the reality of it is we woke up January 1st and pretty much was the same as December 31st. But you know what? God's also the same, December 31st and January 1st. And if we look at the character of God, we see that He is faithful, and that He is with us, that He will never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what happens in 2021. Because let's be honest, nobody wants to say it out loud, but it could get worse. It could get a lot worse. 
We don't want that to happen. But if it does, where do we, where do we put our trust? Where do we put our hope? Where do we find our peace? It's godliness plus contentment. It's great gain. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the peace that we can have knowing that regardless of anything and everything that happens in our world, in our families, in our personal lives, God, that you are in control and that you do know what's coming. You do have plans for us, Father, and sometimes those plans uh, might, might have to go through a lot of pain. But God, we thank you that you are faithful and you are with us and you walk with us in the midst of the deepest and darkest of pains. And Father, may we find contentment in that simple truth. May we find security in that simple truth and safety and hope and peace even if there's just nothing but us and you, we can find contentment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.